good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be. Wherever you are on this rotating globe, welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn. And I think I lost my music. Well, that's hopefully that's not a harbinger of what, what's going to be coming tonight. Uh, you're on The Other Side of Midnight. My name is Richard Z. Hoagland. And we have a very interesting program um, planned for this evening. Uh, full starts in uh, theme music notwithstanding. Uh, but before we get to our guests and the subject of the evening, which I will uh, let you know right up front, is going to be a very murky trail across the wilds and wilderness and mountains of Afghanistan. How come Afghanistan became so important for... American society and American culture. Well, that's one of the things that we're going to be discussing tonight with our uh, good friend and resident historian, Dr. Richard Spence. But in the meantime, um, let me get to a couple of news items. The one thing I can say tonight is that I'm very glad that we are not in um, Louisiana or in Mississippi or Tennessee or Georgia or any of those um, uh, southeastern states tonight because... A major Class 4 hurricane came ashore this afternoon, uh, a few hours ago, just afternoon local time, and it's been acting kind of peculiar. It took a very long time, like six, seven hours for it to recede from a Cat 4 down to the current strength, which is a Cat 2. Now, the difference between a Cat 4 and a Cat 2 is 25 miles per hour wind speed that's all cat 2 is 125 cat 4 is 150 um this is really interesting because the winds did not die and the hurricane has persisted to be very organized and it's still an extraordinarily dangerous storm so if anyone is listening to us in the soggy southeast tonight pay very close attention to your weather advisories I hope you have migrated away from low ground, the winds, and the rain. The rain is going to be ferocious. I've seen estimates between 12 and 20 inches in the next uh, 24 hours. So if you are in a low-lying area, but you're not where the storm surge could get you, which could be up to 15 feet along the coast, and it's still coming ashore because the winds are very, very strong, and that counterclockwise circulation. Anyway, it's a very bad night, not just in Georgia, but in the, um, uh, you know, American Southeast. So for God's sake, if you can get to high ground, if you're if you're late, 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 late leaving, if it's dar- dark where you are, if the power's gone out, please be careful. And tomorrow, when the storm has passed, don't go outside and step on any, you know, hot wires. A lot of people you know, get killed after hurricanes because it's not the wind and many times it's not the water, it's people's stupidity after the storm when they think it's all clear and they go out and they fry themselves in a high tension line. They also try uh, driving through uh, standing water on streets and roads. That's also a very dumb idea. So be very careful because we, uh, we want you to remain in our very extensive worldwide listening audience. So item number one, if you want to kind of see some comparisons between Ida and this incredible coincidence, 16 years uh, to the day since Katrina and back in 2005, you might want to check out item number one in my section. Um, This is kind of a comparison side by side with statistics and some interesting history and kind of will give you some more context for what's going on in Louisiana tonight. And again, um, I I should say that we are actually having the beginnings of a major thunderstorm here. We're in the monsoon season and we're having lightning very close to the house. So if I disappear, uh, Keith is going to be taking over. And uh, just uh, suffice to say that I'm 99.999% of the You know, sure, I'm going to be all right, but we may lose power because this is a very old house and it doesn't like bad weather. I can guarantee you that from experience. 
Item number two in Radio with Pictures. Um, we've got an article there from The Guardian from someone was, who was in Kabul when it fell to the Taliban a couple weeks ago. And he describes his first-person experiences and uh, the speed of the collapse, which shocked everyone. And that's some of the background that we're going to be getting into tonight when we bring uh, Dr. Spence on the air. There's an extraordinary amount uh, of information and background on Afghanistan that Americans, even after 20 years of being there, are apparently quite unaware of. And uh, the speed of the return of the country to Taliban rule after we announced with great fanfare we were leaving is part of that cultural background which I think is very important for us to uh, take into account. And so we will be doing that for the rest of the morning. Item number three. This is something which is really interesting and could be a harbinger of positive things to come. The last several days, there have been very important negotiations going on in the background regarding the... uh, Oh, that was lightning. Regarding the... um, Uh, Taliban uh, in control of Afghanistan and all of the people who helped us during the war, Afghanis, as well as Americans and employers and um, uh, independent uh, non-governmental organizations that were part of our occupation of Afghanistan. Uh, A lot of those people still have not left and they want to leave. And so apparently in the last day or so, announced this morning, 97 other countries have announced that we have a deal with the Taliban to keep excavating allies, uh, Afghanis and other nationals and Americans, green card holders, um, non-governmental you know, organization employees, all those folks. Um, we have an agreement, we are told, to continue evacuating these people after August 31st, after Tuesday, which, of course, is the end of our agreed stay in terms of the uh, Trump administration's negotiation with the Afghanistan uh, Taliban. And so we will see. But uh, again, the details of this are going to be um, uh, part of our discussion this morning. And in the third hour, given the position now of women and girls in Afghan society run once again by the Taliban. Uh, We're going to be adding um, uh, Georgia Lambert to our conversation, and um, I think she has some very interesting insights that we will benefit uh, from hearing when when she arrives. Item number four. Uh, This is a very sad note. Um, I've been a fan of Ed Asner for decades since, uh, well, since the Lou Grant um, participation in the Mary Tyler Moore Show. And unfortunately, last night at the ripe old age of 91, Ed Asner passed away quietly. And we, uh, we wish him well. We are sad and sorry for the family, of course. But if you want to take a look at some of his achievements in uh, television, in film, Uh, Take a look at item number four. Um, It's particularly interesting the way they treat his uh, experience on Mary Tyler Moore and how his uh, role as the bluff and gruff um, station manager of, uh, you know, uh, the station there in uh, Minneapolis uh, turned into its own television series called Lou Grant, where he played the... um, a managing editor of a major uh, Los Angeles newspaper, a fictional newspaper, and they actually, I think, I think Ed Asner, from his total career, accrued something like nine Emmys, um, majority of them for Mary Tyler Moore, but I think at least four of them were for the uh, Lou Grant show. So, uh, Ed, Godspeed. Well, as I said at the top of the show, our guest this morning is. Uh, is going to be very interesting, and our conversation is going to be very, very, what should I say, complicated? Because we're dealing with this astonishing place, which I guarantee you most Americans know far less about 
that in some cases they know about the moon, and that is the country of Afghanistan. Oh, that lightning is very close. Um, so without further ado, let me bring on my guest of the morning, Dr. Richard Spence. Richard, are you there? I am here. There you are. Okay. Yeah, if I disappear, um, I have not been beamed up. It's that the weather tonight okay. is very, very strange. Uh, it might even be the periphery of the vast cyclonic storm that is uh, Ida. I mean, when these these currents and vortices disturb the lower atmosphere, uh, they can extend far more than just a few, you know, tens of miles across for the eye. They actually can be hundreds and sometimes almost a thousand miles across. So maybe the weather tonight here, which is pretty bad, has been triggered by the weather over the Gulf and over uh, Louisiana, which is frankly much worse. So without further ado, Rick, why don't we know, why don't Americans know more about a place that we have lived in, that we have occupied, that we have supported, that has been part of our uh, almost daily conversation for over a generation, this remote, distant place called Afghanistan? Well, I guess one thing to say is that I, I'm, I'm not quite sure that that would be true, that it's been part of the daily conversation. If you're a, an American contractor or you're in the American military or you're an American diplomat or you're an American with an NGO that's in Afghanistan, then it's part of your daily reality. I mean, you, you have to deal with the place, whether you're in Kabul or whether you're somewhere out in a forward operating base or in one of the, one of the, one of the provincial cities. But the point is, is that for 20 years, let's face it, for the vast majority of Americans, almost nobody other than those who might have a loved one doing some kind of service in Afghanistan are going to give it a single thought during the course of the day. You know, every now and then there will be a television program or a newspaper or a magazine article that will talk about, God, we've been in Afghanistan for a really long time. How are things going there? I don't know. Is the situation improving? Is it deteriorating? Uh, again, every now and then the government will either announce a, draw, a drawdown, American troops are they're reducing the troop levels. Oh, no, no, we're increasing the troop levels, and so now we're going to decrease them again, or we're going to increase them again. But it really just kind of shows up incrementally. So I think that for most people, for the vast majority of the population, Afghanistan during a 20-year period sort of would intrude occasionally upon whatever sort of reverie they were in. And that, I really think, is the key point. I noticed that most people never really thought about it most of the time. It was easy to forget it was there. Hmm. Well, but isn't that kind of the way that Americans treat most other nations? We're incredibly insular. I mean, by any standards, when you talk to even young people from other countries, they seem to know far more about the world than our folks do. Well, that may have to do with their public education, <laughs> where they actually learn things like, maybe like geography. Um, uh, we don't want to get me started on something else, but remember, I'm an historian, not a geographer, but one of the things is often important. No, 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 we, 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 Rick, Rick, no, we, 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 have yeah. three, we have three hours, and, you know, I'm a kind of a poly whatever, which means I like these little canyons we go down. What were you going to say? Well, I was going to say that, that one of the common, what would often strike me among students over a period of 40 years in, in higher education, dealing with college students for 40 years, and what was one of the takeaways from that? Well, a lot of people, you know, a certain number of people were very well informed about where they were positioned on the planet at any one given time. But for the most part, I was continuously amazed at how little awareness people seemed to have about where they were in juxtaposition to anything else. So, um, it it reminds me of a, uh, here's, here's a story that would go with it. There was a fellow I knew years ago who um, was traveling in Europe, back in a thing they had then, still now, called a Eurail Pass, and the whole thing. Oh, I, I know those, yeah, yeah. Get all of your rail pass. Well, he was actually in Eastern Europe, and there was some sort of, you know, this was back during the Cold War period, and he had some sort of Eastern European equivalent of a year rail pass. And what he was doing is that he was using it to sleep on the train 
So he would travel between different cities at night. So he would save in a hotel. He would simply buy his transportation. He would sleep on the train. But he wasn't always sure where it was that he would he would wake up. Uh-huh. And and so one morning he woke up and he looked out the window and he saw a sign in the station they were in and it said Krosnik Wabelski. <laughs> okay. Now, I can bet you that most people listening, or most people anywhere, even a lot of people in Poland, which by the way is where he was, wouldn't necessarily know where Krasnik Wabelski was. But he did. Oh my God. <laughs> and I mean, there was, a, there, there was a kind of momentary panic because it was like, I don't know, where have I, where have I been? You know, where, where am I? But then he began to think, and he goes, that name looks familiar. And he realized he was in Poland. In fact, he realized that he was in southeastern Poland. He could fix himself on, on this, this kind of mental map. And you may wonder, how was he able to do that? And his explanation was, I always kept an atlas in the bathroom. Ah. So his <laughs> reading... Was... And I would read the ad, and he he was one of those people who was a kind of you know a map freak. He's always looking at maps, and, and the thing is, is that I guess I kind of understand that because I'm probably one of those too. I have, I really like looking at maps, old maps, new maps, whatever. And it's but it's it's one of those kind of values that many people really seem to have lost. <laughs> so when he found and, himself and... when he found himself in one of those in in case of fire break glass, he was prepared. He was prepared simply because he'd taken the time, you know, and that, now true, that's, that's something that most people probably wouldn't find themselves in. But it can be, you know, one of, one of the values people might come up, well, you know, why study maps? You know, why know where Paraguay is? Well, because one morning you might wake up in Paraguay. Who knows? <laughs> and then at least you know, you know where you are. And but I was often just amazed at how little knowledge people see, you know, people who gone through high school and graduated somewhere, okay? They, they weren't going to get into college if they hadn't done it, but who seemed to have, you know, there was America, Canada was above us, and and most of them could place Mexico to the south, hmm. uh, but that's about it. And, and the rest of it was all pretty vague. Europe was at the end of a long plane flight from New York. They knew that. <laughs> that was about what you get there. So the further you get out of the, the places where people would often travel, but, you know, if you're traveling to a place or if you, you've been there, you have some kind of awareness for it. But, you know, again, why would, uh, you know, most people, most people wouldn't give much of a thought to Afghanistan unless it somehow intruded through the news or through some kind of, personal connection it, it practically speaking didn't exist to them we all have other things to do during the day than to think about afghanistan and so what's what's so weird is you don't now have to keep an atlas in the bathroom we have something called the google machine and i would yes. think with extraordinary amount of blood and treasure and and you know metaphysical energy that we've expended on on this place called afghanistan over 20 years, a lot of people, just because of family relationships, you know, the kids in the family went and served in Afghanistan, that kind of thing, you'd think more people would know. And I've, I've actually tested this. Almost nobody can even find it on a map. No, because well, the only way you can't find it on a map is if you never look at a map. <laughs> that, that's it. And, and, and true, maps have probably never been more widely or easily available to people than ever before. And yet, oddly enough, I don't, I don't think geographical knowledge is uh, going through any kind of significant increase. So, for instance, when I would teach um, a course, let's say, on, on Middle Eastern history, which I, I taught a course on Middle Eastern history, and so one of the first things we'd start out with was just going over, okay, Here's the Middle East. It's not really east or in the middle of anything. But <laughs> nevertheless, that's what it is. That we, that's what we call it. Well, you know, it's to the east of something, but it's to the north, south. And, yeah. So the Middle East is this, is, embraces this very large area. And, but we just would start out by going, okay, we'll start over to the west with Morocco. That's, that's certainly not the east of anything, but we're going to count it in because we're really talking about an area that has more to do with history than culture than geography. 
and then go across. And at the opposite end, you know, once you've gone through Morocco and Algeria and Egypt and Syria and then down to the Arabian Peninsula and over to Persia, once you keep going by eastern, the eastern boundary. So when are we going to stop? We're going to stop when we get to Afghanistan. Hmm. I think and we Afghanistan skipped over. Be, I think we skipped over Tunisia. <laughs> oh, there's Tunisia. That, you know, there's you know. See, there's it, it, Abu Abu Dhabi. Yes. Yeah. But it was sort of go through. So Afghanistan was always at the the kind of eastern edge. So one of the ways I would approach it, there's a when we talk about the Middle East, there's a kind of core area, and the core area is again basically Egypt. Syria, Israel, Iraq, Arabia, that kind of center region. And then there are the peripheral areas that, that spread out, and Afghanistan is one of those one of those in the east. But could, it, could this be part, Rick, Rick, could, could this, in yeah. part, Rick, be more cultural than geographical? Because one of the commonalities of all those nations is they're all, uh, you know, Islamic societies. Yes, and then that's that's really when you talk about the Middle East, you're talking you're talking about Islamic Eurasia, and it's a that Middle East becomes our. I mean, the, the old term for it, the term actually that the French who came up with this it was the Near East, and the Near East meant you know. The stuff that's not quite as far away as Siberia or China. Okay, China and Japan, that's the Far East, because you have to get in a boat and just sail forever before you get to those places. But see, the Near East, well, you know, you could uh, walk out of your Paris apartment. If you just kept walking, you'd eventually be there. Mm. So, but the, but the definition of what the Near East was also changed. So when the, when the Ottoman Empire, when the Islamic Turkish Ottoman Empire ruled the Balkans, then places like Bulgaria and Albania and Greece were considered to be part of the Near East. But then when those gained their independence from the Ottoman Empire, then they became part of Eastern Europe, while Turkey still remains... You know, remember how Turkey today, there's the, the effort is, you know, is Turkey part of the Middle East or is it part of Europe? Right? Is, it, is it part of the Middle East? Or is it, well, part of it is geographically in Europe, a little part of it. Most of it is geographically in what we call Asia, but those are just terms we sort of invented. Um, the geography doesn't matter that much, but it's much more important in, in terms of Turkey as to whether it sees itself as part of Europe or whether it sees itself as part of this larger, essentially Islamic Middle East. And that, that's that's another topic for another evening. In fact, I think we've probably talked about some of it before, but t modern Turkey is going through a kind of identity crisis of having moved much closer to Europe through most of the 20th century. It now is somewhat moving away, or at least trying to, to separate itself from a kind of European identity. Mm. NATO, of course, notwithstanding. Yes, NATO notwithstanding. <laughs> mm. So let's go back. We've got about 10 minutes before the bottom of the hour. Let's start at sure. the very, 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 very beginning. Okay. Because when I look at the so globe. I wanna... go, go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, my question. Well, what I was going to do. Yeah. <laughs> you go, Richard. After, there you go. That's it. After you, Alphonse. Go ahead. I was going to start with, a, with one of those proverbs, you know, an old proverb. So this, this particular, I don't know, it's not a proverb, it's a saying, it's an old saying. I've never heard anybody say it's an Afghan saying. I've heard it described either as an Arab saying or as a Persian saying, which means it somehow comes out of the Middle East. So it's applicable to Afghanistan, uh, and, and I think it, it, it does, you know, it, it, I think it fits in, it resonates in other ways as well. And it goes like this, and this is what I want people who are listening to remember as we go on this evening. I against my brother, my brother and I against our cousin, my brother, my cousin, and I against the outsider. Hmm. Now, there you've got Middle Eastern politics 101. I was going to say that kind of sums up the whole show. Well, folks, that's been uh, Dr. Richard Spence tonight. <laughs> I, I, I really appreciate his contributions to our conversation. <laughs> I mean, it's like you, you basically said it all, because what I'm going to bring to the table later on in the morning, I hope, when we get Georgia, is I do not think that the extrapolations of current Afghanistan 
as dire and negative and and you know catastrophic as they have been are necessarily grounded in um what's that term they they uh, they use in geopolitics uh, ground truth or you know the uh, the scene of the whatever in other words i i i i just can't imagine that we americans who have used to be known as you know the ugly americans that we have been in afghanistan culturally look at all these people that we've influenced look at all these people that we've tried uh, now to to bring out who were part of our experiment in in nation building i can't imagine we could spend 20 years there and not have some kind of peripheral or even more d- direct influence on that particular saying meaning that we may have left the culture at a cultural level not militarily but culturally in a different space almost than that saying would uh, portend well we'd like to think so but i don't know old habits are old for a reason but let's just let's just keep that saying in mind i mean that that's certainly what has guided things up to this but the other initial point we can bring in before the break is that you've got this entity this political state called afghanistan now here's the interesting thing if you go to afghanistan and you go from one end to the other from north to south to east to west the one thing that you will never find in an ethnic sense is that you will never find a tribe or physical community of people who are called afghans hmm there is no ethnicity there is no group of people with a particular Afghan culture. There are Pashtuns and Tajiks and Hazaras and Uzbeks and Aymaks and Turkomans and Baluks and, I don't know, a couple of dozen others in small amounts, but no Afghans. That itself is a kind of interesting thing that maybe we can look at, is where did the country get its name? Why are there no Afghans in Afghanistan? And if there aren't any Afghans, then who lives there? Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Sorry, I have to do something here, housekeeping. This is real-time radio, folks. So, okay. Um, why do you why do you think that is? In other words, the reason that we failed, and I'm not quite sure I would use that term except as an example for the moment, is because there's there was no national identity, uh, cultural, Afghanistani, um, uh, you know, context or, uh, you know, uh, people basically identifying with a larger whole than their brother, their cousin, and the other. Well, so your brother, your cousin, one of the important things about is the importance of family. And family as part of a clan, clan as part of a tribe, tribe as part of an ethnic community. And while the the very things that bind people together are the things that can separate them. And, for instance, the bonds of of family are probably the strongest that you can find among human beings anywhere. I mean, Uh, people uh, fundamentally more than anything else. Why don't we hold it there, because we are at the bottom of the hour. I'm having some problem with my clocks. Gosh, what else can happen? <laughs> you're, on, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. My guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence, and we are going to be discussing rather extensively and hopefully in some depth this concept, this notion of Afghanistan. And although there, even if there, I'll get my words straight momentarily, even if there is no national Afghani identity there is music and so what we're going to be doing is dipping in tonight to some Afghan music by some very famous Afghanis this is from a guy named Daya Beta uh, recorded back in 2014 so enjoy you're on the other side of midnight my name is Richard C. Hoagland here is genuine Afghan music we shall return Thank you. 
it's funny because I think, you know, I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this. Whereas now you can't do that. There's no such thing. So like you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves. People are too frightened. It's like, you know, I want to say something, but if, what if I use the wrong term? But I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch, who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes, was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And, and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting. And they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict. You can't do that. And so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community, but he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end, you'll go, well, I won't say anything then. The fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realize, you know, when you, 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 you're phoning up the police and grassing on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbors and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello, everyone. My name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Anetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. back everyone this Sunday night August 29th 2021 uh, the rain appears to uh, well the lightning at least is kind of decreased so looks like we might actually get through another whole show my guest this morning is Dr. Richard Spence and we're delving into this arcane rather fascinating thing in front of us that none of us have, have really delved deeply into even after 20 years namely Afghanistan. Music in the background, of course, is uh, Afghani music, and we're going to be dipping in and out of that during the morning. Uh, Richard, um, how did a, 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 a group of tribes and families with these very different cultural identities, even if they seem to have one unifying religion, namely Islam, how did they wind up becoming you know, a kind of a nation in any sense of the word at any time, because it's almost like the classic, uh, you know, uh, Hatfield and McCoy shotgun wedding. Who shot them, shotgun them together to form a nation, which if the last couple of three weeks is any uh, indication, is not very much of a nation. Well, you know, it's like, how did you wake up one morning and become an Afghani? So, or how, how did how did a particular people find themselves in there? So it goes back to this question of this this puzzle I sort of played is that you've got a nation called Afghanistan with no actual group of people in it who are ethnically Afghanis. There isn't there. So there is an Afghan nationality, and that's existed since 1823. So let's, I'm going to throw out a lot of dates. Nobody has to remember them. There will not be a test afterwards. That's just like yesterday. But, yeah. So when when Afghanistan, when that name first is is connected to a country, to a political state, that's 1823. So no, it is not ancient. Now, the people who were who found, woke up one morning in 1823 and didn't know it yet but we're now living in something called the Emirate of Afghanistan oh. were the same people whose ancestors had been living there for hundreds if not thousands of years 
So for all the hundreds or thousands of years that they lived in the same place, in the same valley, in the same mountains, for centuries or millennia without being Afghans, now because a ruler, a warlord, basically in Kabul, had proclaimed himself the emir of Afghanistan, they were Afghanis, and thus the nation was born. But one of the reasons why that name was chosen, in part, for the name of the Emirate, was specifically because it didn't exactly refer to any particular ethnic group. Although it did kind of. So let me, let me try to explain that. So the question might be, is that if there was no group, no group of people in Afghanistan called Afghans, then where did that name come from? Well... The best explanation that can come up with is that it's the same reason, in a sense, that we talk about a people in Europe called Germans. Mm-hmm. We talk about a country called Germany. We always refer to them that way. And yet, I'm sure, as many people know, the Germans don't call themselves Germans. They're Deutsch, and their country isn't Germany. It's Deutschland. It's just the rest of the world that refers to them by different names. So, by the way, to the French, you know, they're, they're Alemans. <laughs> Uh, and to the and to the Spanish, they're Alemans as well, and to you know the English speakers and Americans, uh, they are Germans. But that's not really what they call themselves at all. And you know the Deutsch, the Germans, remember, seem to have have more or less adjusted the idea. But it, it's one of the things to often find is that you'll find whole nations of people who essentially have an international presence under a name that they don't call themselves. So wait, the, wait, 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 the does, does, wait, yeah. wait, wait, doesn't that yeah. get kind of confusing? <laughs> you think so, but somehow we all know, who, in other words, when, when an American talks to Germans about Germans, they know from long experience who he's talking about, even though that's not the name they use for themselves. I think probably a lot of Americans might be confused, you know, the idea that Germans aren't Germans, but, but they respond to the name. That, that, that's, I think it's kind of readily recognized that on an international basis, that's, that's probably the name that they're going to be, going to be known by. But it is, it, it's a strange, uh, it, it's, it, it's the way ultimately of sort of seeing yourself or, or accepting the name that other people have given you, even though that's, that's not your own. So something like that happened in what would become Afghanistan. And the term itself, the, the best explanation I've heard, and there are, there's more than one, the best explanation is that for a long time, for many of those centuries and millennia before 1823, you know, mm-hmm. almost all of human history, mm-hmm. that area, which is now Afghanistan, was more often than not, it was part of the Persian Empire. Oh, Iran. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so Iran, so, which historically, you know, is, remember, up until 1934, it ain't Iran, it's Persia. Oh, well, that tells me why I found something very interesting this afternoon. Yeah. Because when I was picking music for the breaks, I wanted to, you know, and I, I knew there's not such thing as, quote, Afghan music, but there are all kinds mm-hmm. of wonderful cultures in Afghanistan, so we're going to do that. But then I found this incredible overlap with Iran, and that explains yes. it. And probably stuff in the in the in the Farsi language. You remember a reference to that? Mm-hmm. Okay, Farsi is Persian. Okay, so the the official language in in Iran, the the, the Persian language is Farsi, and Farsi is actually the most widely spoken language in Afghanistan. So again, there's no actual Afghan language. So the most widely spoken language is Farsi, which is Persian, the same language that's spoken in Iran. A different dialect, but mm. it's Farsi. In Afghanistan, it's called Dari, and that was a political decision to call it something. That's what happened in the 1960s, is that the Afghan king just decided he would try to... It was a gesture to Afghan nationalism, so instead of saying that we mostly speak Farsi, we'll, we'll call it Dari. But everybody knows it's Farsi, because it's the same language. So it's the Persian, there were, historically there were three different Persian empires. So there was a Persian empire, you know, back the, the Athenian, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the 300 Spartans Persians, 
uh, in the ancient world. And then there were the Sassanid Persians that the Romans fought with all the time. And then there were the Safavid Persians that were a Shiite Muslim dynasty that came in around the 16th century. So during all three of those empires, the Persian Empire generally kind of expanded out to absorb the area that would later become Afghanistan. And when Alexander the Great went around 300 BC, Alexander the Great destroyed the Persian, the first Persian Empire and marched all the way to India, he marched right through what later became Afghanistan. And apparently, he subdued it, or at least he subdued it well enough that he could march his army through and and supply it through that area. And, uh, but even then, it was noted that the area was mountainous and inhospitable and largely inhabited by unfriendly warlike people. Hmm. So, <laughs> it, it wasn't easy. He wasn't necessarily greeted uh, with great friendship. I, I was going to say, through. it doesn't sound like much has changed. No. <laughs> it's amazing how those things uh, remain consistent. By the way, before we go any further, uh, Rick has yeah. posted a couple of items in uh, Radio with Pictures, including a map of Afghanistan yes. in the context of other nations around it. And I want to kind of talk about these as a conglomerate because I think they're kind of related. So let's send people to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight banner, which says with that incredible uh, photograph taken by the National Geographic photographer many, many years ago of the Afghani girl looking, you know, terrified into the camera. Uh, it turns out there's a backstory as to why she was terrified. Uh, click on that banner. That will take you to tonight's guest page. Click on Richard's items, Rick uh, items, I'm sorry. And that will take you to his item number one, which a beautifully colored um, geopolitical map of, I think, Afghanistan. And it's got all the different colored blobs, yes? <laughs> okay. And surrounding and, and all it... Those different... Go ahead. Well, to, to, the, to the east, you have Pakistan, okay? which um, has gone through different changes. So before there was Pakistan, it was part of British India. We'll talk about that. And before it was British India, it was the Sikh Empire. And the question might be, did Afghanistan and its inhabitants have peaceful, friendly, cordial relations with any of those three groups? No. Not well, except for the Pakistanis, kind of, um, in the sense of common interest in that regard. And mm. to the west of Afghanistan, if you look today, is Iran, uh, formerly known as Persia, and again, uh, a state as an empire in various forms that that ruled over much of that area so this is something something to keep in mind is that in in modern day iran and in afghanistan there are very important historic links and those links again include things like the languages that are spoken so the main language which is spoken in iran farsi is the main language which is or the most widely spoken or educated people the language people are educated in in that you would find in Afghanistan. So they don't speak a language called Afghani. Um, but, but Farsi is only one of a number of languages because all of those different colored blobs that you see there representing the different ethnic groups, those all have their own languages. Oh, my so gosh. Some of them might speak, they might speak Farsi. Uh, it's, it's one of those. Farsi, in some ways, was for a long time the kind of lingua franca. In other words, it was the language. It was certainly up until the present, from the 19th century, Farsi was the language that an educated person of any ethnicity would likely speak. And it's the language which people who had different languages between themselves would use as a common speech between them. So it means that. While it's it's not the the native language to the to most of the population, it was the most influential language. But it's a the term the best that you can kind of come up with is that when the Persians spoke about the area to the far east. If Persians were talking about the way back beyond the eastern borderlands of the empire, the mountains of the Hindu Kush, you know, the mountains you went through before you got to India, that was a term that the Persians seem first to have referred to as the land of the Afghans. 
Hmm. And that seems to have come from a term that they use that comes from a word called Afagana or Afathana, which looks a little bit like Afghan, and that, that meant horse breeders. Oh, well, so early on, Persians would talk about there were, so there were these people who live off in the mountains in the east, and they're horse breeders. And then later, the Persians tended to use Afghan as a term for anyone, any kind of, you know, basically what they were talking about was hicks and semi-barbarians <laughs> that came from the far, from the far edges of the, of the empire. Okay. So that, that, was, that was the term. So it, 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 Afghan is a term that was kind of adopted as a general descriptor by someone else. It was a term, basically, that the Persians started using for anybody from that area of the state. So it was kind of you know, like a pejorative uh, yokel. Uh, to some degree, I mean, it, it, it describes someone from the, you know, the from the borderlands, so to speak. And you know, if you were in Tabriz or Tehran or any of the you know, cosmopolitan capitals of the Persian Empire, that was probably the back of beyond. But that's but it's it's a term that was applied to them by others. But that brings up the question that. The Persians seem specifically to have meant that. You know, to them, from the center of the Persian Empire, the peoples who lived out in the far-flung eastern mountainous provinces, nobody really gave a damn about them one way or the other. And therefore, what languages they spoke or what they looked like or what their local customs were were of no particular interest to the empire. So you would simply use this descriptor to say that all these people... From the from the barbarous eastern provinces, they're all Afghans um, because we're just because that's the that's the term that we'll use to to, to describe them, and it's it, it's you know you can you can find similar to that. There's a term that's widely used all the way down into Southeast Asia across the Farang, right? Which means foreigner, basically. Okay. Farang. So if you take a trip to Thailand or elsewhere, you're you're Farang. You're not from there. Ah. And it's largely meant to, to refer to, to Europeans. But what that term actually comes from, and you'll find it all the way across, even from there, even to the Middle East, Farang or Farangi, is that it's, it, it's a corruption of the term for Frank. Okay. So, Franks, French, the term that we turned into French, the Franks, which were originally this Germanic tribe that then became the French, that was a term that since many of the, the assumption was that since many of the Western Europeans that people in Syria, Iraq, or elsewhere we come into contact with, uh, or further on we come into contact with, or because of the Crusades in which many of the Crusaders were French, the term Franc or Farang simply came to mean essentially, pretty much it came to mean any kind of Westerner. That, that's what it means which essentially meant a European. So again, Farang doesn't differentiate as to whether or not you're French or English or Danish or Maltese. It doesn't matter. You're a Westerner. You're some weirdo from outside of the country. You're a Farang. Hmm. Even though there's no real... Even though if that term meant French, it, you know, in, in the context of Europe, that would actually only refer to a particular group of people. But elsewhere, it becomes a term that sort of applied... applied excuse me, applied broadly to people who all, you know, basically are from somewhere else and vaguely look alike. So the, the people that the Persians most applied that term to were the biggest blob on that map, which are the Pashtuns. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking about Farsi as being the most, probably the single most widely known language, but if you then look at the area, particularly along the eastern border, you notice there's like this, this large arc of areas that are inhabited by these people called the Pashtuns. Now, for anybody who's read their, their uh, Rudyard Kipling, um, you'll, you'll recognize them as the Pathans. Okay, so in, in a lot of English literature in the 19th century, Pashtuns, I don't know, I guess the British had a hard time pronouncing it. They're called Pathans. But, and they're, they're known as the, they're the sort of warrior people of the Hindu Kush. 
Again, anybody who's familiar with Kipling or any story, anybody who's familiar with the history of British India knows that through most of the 19th and the early 20th, all the way up until 1947, the most turbulent area of the British Raj, of the British Empire, was the thing called the Northwest Frontier, the Northwest Frontier Province. And there was, there was always, you know, if you look at Gunga Din, anything else, there are always restive tribes up in the Northwest Frontier. Well, the Northwest front, front, north Frontier is the border with Afghanistan. That's mm. exactly what that is. And the reason why that area was so restive was that the border that separated Afghanistan from India, the same border, by the way, that separates Afghanistan from Pakistan today, is drawn right down the middle, pretty much, between the lands inhabited by the Pashtun people. Okay. So the Pashtun people, if you look at the map, are the kind of light green area. And you notice that mo along most of the border with Pakistan, you have the light green area, but then you'll notice that there are there are lots of blobs of them up in the north. This whole map kind of looks like camo, mm. which I guess is kind of fitting. <laughs> yes, it does. But, but you'll notice that there are, there are more light green blobs, and, and, and all of those are areas or islands or colonies, so to speak, of the Pashtuns. But here's the other thing, the main thing I want you to get from the map, other than the camo effect, is that there's no, in most cases, really clear lines separating these groups from each other. So the Pashtuns are mostly in the east and the south, and you'll notice that the, the Uzbeks, who are the light brown, are mostly in the north, and the Turkmen are in the north, and the Hazaras, who are the dark green, are mostly in the middle, and the Tajiks, who are the dark brown, well, they're mostly up in the north, East, but then there are also islands of them scattered out among the Pashtuns. So it's not like there are different ethnic groups in Afghanistan and everybody has their own province. It doesn't work that way. It means that there are large areas that are inhabited by one group. In other cases, they're mixed together. In other cases, there are islands of one group inside a kind of sea of another. So it's a very mixed situation there aren't there aren't clean lines separating these these different ethnic communities now so when the persians were talking about afghans as far as anybody could tell what what they were mostly talking about were the pashtuns and they would probably most talk about them because the pashtuns of all these different groups were eh, you might get some argument on this but overall they were the most aggressive and warlike so one of the things is they're, they're mountaineers. They, they tended to live, their homeland is in a very mountainous area. And there's one of the things interesting that you tend to find a mountain, around mountain-dwelling people. Uh, and uh, that is true in many different parts of the world, is that they often tend to be, uh, often because they're separated into particular valleys, because the mountains separate them into areas. They often have very strong local or tribal identities. But the other thing very often is that mountain environments tend to be poor environments. They don't produce a lot of resources, which means that one of the things that you find throughout history is that people who lived in highland areas raided people who lived in lowland areas. Hmm. So well, that's a pretty well simple thing. I mean, where did the Egyptians live? Did they live in mountains? No, <laughs> they lived along a river. Where did all the Babylonians, you know, where did all the cool civilized people live? You know, the ones that built cities and made stuff. They all lived down in the bottomlands next to the river. And if you, if you generally look at this, you'll find that the people who lived in the lowlands down next to the river are always having trouble with the hill people. Because the hill people are always coming down and stealing things or raiding and burning and carrying people off. So that, that's, that's a kind of, and much of it is, is, is just that. It's based upon the kind of raw economics that uh, mountain areas don't produce a lot of resources. And one of the ways in which hill people can get the stuff that they can't make is they can go steal it from the people who live down in the flats. And that meant that one of the reasons why the, the term Afghan as a reference to the Pashtuns, would become widely known all the way over in the capital of the Persian Empire, 
is because the Pashtuns uh, were warlike and they were raiders. Uh, they would raid into the lowland areas of India. They would raid other peoples around them, the Tajiks in particular. The Tajiks tended to be somewhat more settled agriculturalists, and therefore they had stuff. Uh, and therefore, that, that's, that's, that's part of the whole historical dynamic that still exists today between Pashtuns and Tajiks. So among other Afghan peoples, among other peoples like Tajiks and others living in Afghanistan, the Pashtuns have a very old reputation for, uh, for being aggressive, for being um, militant, for basically coming in and taking stuff and, and taking over. It, it, in, in the, the best example I can give you of that is that every single ruler of Afghanistan, at least up through the monarchy in the 1970s, every emir, every king was a Pashtun. Oh. Well, with the exception of one guy, but he's only around very briefly. And gets killed. And he knocked but, them off, yeah. <laughs> yes. But but all of them. I mean, there there have been three dynasties that have had people in control of this area, and all of them have been Pashtuns. So so the Pashtuns are the most they're the most militant and aggressive, and they tended to hold political power. Although they were not the wealthiest, and they were not by any means generally the most educated. So even though more people speak Farsi in Afghanistan than speak Pashto simply because Farsi is spoken by Pashtuns and by other peoples, again, as this, as this kind of lingua franca. In, in, in essence, Farsi is naturally the language of the Persian Tajik people, the dark green area. That, that's, that's their language. Hmm. Other people use it as, as a lingua franca, and, and the Pashtuns have done that as well. And, and that was, that's one of the beasts of the Pashtuns, as long their feeling is that uh, their language was seen as a, a language of, of ignorant hillbillies. It didn't have much of a literature for a long time. It didn't get any particular cultural respect. But on the other hand, they ran things. Hmm. They were the... Here's... This isn't is... Uh, Taylor, we, yeah, we are at the right. top of the hour. Let's kind of hold it there. This is more... Uh, Afghan music from the background that I went and kind of looked at carefully this afternoon. And when we return, we're, I'm going to ask uh, Rick a very interesting question. Who in their right mind ever considered that among all these, shall we say, warring tribes, that you could in fact create one nation? In other words, whose bright idea was it in 1823 to create and Afghanistan. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>